Welcome to Modern Medieval, the podcast. I'm Megan. And I'm Ello. And today we're going to speak about laughing at or with the Middle Ages. This episode is going to be quite different from what you heard before. We're trying something new. We're discussing things that we've learned about and thought about quite a lot. So I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, definitely a change of pace from last week as well. Trying to lighten the mood rather than <laughs> bring us bring us down. But we'll see how they're all related. And yeah. again, how the medieval is involved in it all. First, we were going to tell you about some of the news this week um, that reminded us of the medieval and the Middle Ages and perhaps some of the things that we talked about last week. The, the day that we submitted and released our last podcast for you all, we got a headline that the bubonic plague has been diagnosed in at least two people in China. Now, I can't recall if we mentioned this last week, but the Black Plague, the bubonic plague, has never actually completely disappeared. It has been around, people are diagnosed every year. It's a handful, but it's still around. So it's quite interesting to think about the fact that this made international headlines. Yeah. And its relationship, once again, Maybe it's this pandemic time and thinking, oh no, the bubonic plague, the black death is coming. Yeah, it, it's really interesting as well. I don't know if, you, if you're in your circle, this is a, like a t- topic of conversation, but like in my, in my close family and friends and, you know, all that, there's been like talk of like, okay, well, this one will end. And then there's a, millions of possibilities of other contagious diseases that might, you know, spread. Yeah, I I don't know if you've heard about the one that has been going through. Um, it's one of the countries that is uh, that used to be part of the USSR that butts up against China. Um, I think it's like it's not Kazakhstan, but it's one of those countries. I'm gonna have to is it Turkmenistan? Check. Maybe it's Turkmenistan um, that has killed at least 1,200 people, and it's potentially they epidemiologists think that it's the next one more violent and contagious than coronavirus so they're currently trying to like maintain that so that's really lovely (laughs) i haven't heard any more about the uh new swine flu in china but that was something that we mentioned last week so we we promised to lighten the mood after this (laughs) Yeah, but um, there was another headline. Ello, do you want to? Yeah. Talk so about that? you know, talking about you know the reactions to the plague and like literature being a way to escape your reality, we actually re- found a couple of articles um, that talked about the Decameron project, where <clears throat> the this was a New York Times um, post uh, article. Sorry. And the article kind of like talked about this project where people would reenact the stories, would adapt them, and how really exemplifying how literature is a means to escape the reality. And it kind of, the way that these, the fact that the the Cameron keeps being brought up um, kind of shows how like people are connecting with the Middle Ages and with the medieval, something that perhaps they would have thought of as an antiquate, anti- antiquated like a couple of months ago, they can now relate to it a bit better. And that's quite interesting as well. Yeah, and especially this sense of escape through storytelling. And so, yeah, that New York Times magazine article is really, really lovely. We'll add a link to our show notes today. But the way that it takes inspiration from Boccaccio's to Cameron, but then it retells it today in contemporary ways. So rather than, I believe it's 10 people over 10 yeah, days. 10, pe- 10 um, people. Over t- I think, yes, I think it is 10 people because it's one story a night that works. Yeah. Right. So with this, um, the way that it's set up is each day is a contemporary author telling yeah. their story or relationship to the current um, pandemic times. And actually, if you guys have Netflix, I don't know if you've watched this. I think I may have sent you the link, but not given you any um, comment Context. on what it is. <laughs> there's uh, there's on Netflix, there's this um, show called Home Project, I think. Um, and in it, a lot of filmmakers, artists, 
film like a short um short film of seven mm-hmm. minutes where they show what their where their imagination has taken them during this time of um home based life yeah i feel like i do recall you either sending me a link or mentioning have you watched this and yeah i said no and i didn't know what it was and then i didn't <laughs> tell you so that that just kind of ended it <laughs> yeah and it kind of go leaping off that just based off of how it sounds it's i have found that there's this really fascinating interest i constantly am seeing you know headlines in the news or on facebook or kind of twitter threads about how fascinated people are with others interiors of their homes and like what's on their bookshelves and I just it's like an inner glimpse into that inner person but I feel like this is kind of related to all of that and the way that we tell stories and who tells them and how we tell them and the person themselves and how that kind of helps us it's a new form of storytelling that helps us get through the looking at the same walls same artworks same streets every day um, so yeah, that project is really, really fascinating and interesting. And then the last thing, it's more recent that has happened that is directly related to the medieval and we will potentially address in a full length episode yeah. because it's quite fascinating is the news surrounding the Hagia Sophia in Turkey and it's reverse reverting back to being a mosque or the political yeah. decision to do that. Isn't that fascinating? So yeah, it was first it was a church, right? Then it became a museum. Mm-hmm. And then through pressure from the Islamist groups and uh, things, the Islamist groups in, in Turkey, eventually it was decided through a court appeal that it could be reverted to a mosque. Is that, am I correct in the timeline? Yes, I believe so. Um, so it was built in 537 AD. So it's at the fall of the Roman Empire, but the beginning of the medieval ages. And it was built during the reign of Roman Emperor uh, Justinian I. So it's considered late antique. It's in, Anstam- in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for those of you who just need a geographic place to where it is. Um, and it has served as a Greek Orthodox Christian cathedral, a Roman Catholic cathedral, an Ottoman mosque, and then a museum. And I believe the museum was sometime in the mid 20th century. Yeah. And it's actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Yeah. And there is conflict regarding this ruling because in its listing for UNESCO, it is listed as a museum not as a religiously affiliated current in practice space. And so I don't know the politics or legislation surrounding that, but UNESCO has been like, this is concerning uh, for us. Yeah. I think it's also interesting because obviously like if you, you know, um, if a secular building Mm -hmm. is turned into a religious building, Mm-hmm. then that kind of changes the whole dynamic and it changes, you know, the meaning of the monument and of the building and how you consider it and how you relate to it. Yeah, exactly. It kind of instills a certain type of aura or something regarding yeah. that. Yeah. It also has um, questions about access. So yeah. if it's a mosque... Then you won't be able to go. Right. And... Or I know that certain mosques allow tourists, people not of the faith to tour, but you have to set up appointments. And so when you have this beautiful, beautiful monument that has historically been around for over 1,500 years, how do you yeah. like take that away from the people? I know that that's not exactly what's happening. No. It's also related to the increasing emergence of religion in Turkey. Yeah, it's and true. It's, um, I googled the like type that Hagia Sophia has been historically. So this is according to Wikipedia, but I'll take it at face value. So from 537 to 1054, it was a Byzantine Christian cathedral. Oh. From 
1054 to 1204, it was a Greek Orthodox cathedral. From 1204 to 1261, it was a Roman Catholic cathedral. From 1261 to 1453, it was a Greek Orthodox cathedral. Yeah. From 1453 to 1935, it was an Ottoman mosque. So arguably having mm, either being an Ottoman mosque or some sort of Christian cathedral, it's about a 50-50 split. Yeah. And then in 1935, it was created as a museum. Yeah, was it, it must have been during the reign of Ataturk. I mean, during the time of Ataturk, maybe rain is not, you know. Right. Um, it does not say on the side, but I will go yes. Because <laughs> yeah. he secular, secularized the country or tried to, okay. or started yeah. to. Yeah, so then it must that have been connected. Timeline-wise seems to... Yeah. I w- so for one of my uh, Capella Palatina essay, I read mm. an, an article by Stephanie Trigg, who's a um, very big academic, Mm -hmm. Um, she's based in Australia I think if I remember correctly anyway her article was on how like the experience of visiting um, cathedrals and like the different types of cathedrals and um, the experience as you know a professor and as an academic Mm -hmm. to go visit these places that you know she studied and she said something along the lines of like you know when you go to this place of worship it's important to kind of see how it's been modernized right so whether it's open to the public whether um it's still a place of worship whether it's turned into mm-hmm. a museum and that kind of changes your experience of it so kind of like the Hagia Sophia um if it changes back into something else that will change how you can relate to the building and to the to that space Yes, yes, exactly. And going off of that, also the denomination sometimes just has a certain effect. Um, so I grew up Episcopalian, was baptized Episcopalian. My grandfather was an Episcopalian priest, but I no longer identify necessarily as religious. Yeah. I would say I have a spiritual um, inclination, but it's not labeled to a particular sect of religion. However, I love, I absolutely adore going to churches and cathedrals and visiting. Um, but I do have an awareness of the type of church I'm walking into. Yeah. Um, just for me, it feels as a form of respect and um, also just awareness. The architecture will be affected a certain way, what's shown in statues or stained glass windows. But also whether or not I need to be prepared. So like when I was in Italy, you have to have... Uh, when I was in Florence, you have to yeah. cover um, your your shoulders and or your your head as a sign of respect when you enter the church. So even though it was blazing hot, when I was walking around Florence, I would wear a head, um, like a, a scarf in my hair as a bow so that when I walked into yeah. churches, I could take it off and like drape myself. But I saw so many tourists. Unfortunately, a lot of them were American uh, being turned away. <laughs> because yeah. they weren't in appropriate clothing. Yeah, um, I remember also like shorts weren't allowed. I remember one time I had to wear like a scarf on, like as a skirt. And I remember thinking, oh, this is a bit too, because I've always, I don't know if, if it's been the same for you, but I've always gone in the summer and it's always been too hot. And like the last thing I want to do is go into a church. Yeah. Um, so when I was visiting um, in Paris, France as well as um, Italy, the churches that I was visiting, it was summer, it was hot, it was warm, but I didn't have, this is when I was backpacking Europe and I didn't have shorts. I just had skirts. Oh, that's Um, smart. But skirts still had to be a certain length. I think it was something like a couple inches up to the knee or slightly above. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was lucky because I was always quote unquote getting away with it because I was wearing flowing clothes right but yes I saw many uh people many tourists being turned away because they were in shorts or they're in appropriate inappropriate shoes or their shirts like the it wasn't deemed respectful and appropriate for that space yeah and so yeah I think that this conversion back into a mosque has certain implications just in regard to like also feeling sense of comfort like I don't know like when I go into 
extremely Roman Catholic churches, even I'm not Catholic. I feel like when I go to a certain altar to admire the the space, slightly uncomfortable because I don't want to seem disrespectful. Maybe that's my own. No, I get that. I also, I also feel like when you go into a cathedral, especially if it's a place of worship, mm-hmm. I often sit there and I think I don't, I don't want to take up the space that's you know for the people who want to come here and pray and do mm-hmm. whatever they want to do in in the church or in the cathedral. And so I kind of roam around really quickly, don't really speak to anyone, and then leave. Yeah, I just. I vividly remember, so when I went to Notre Dame the first time, this was in summer of 2017, you know, I queued in line to get in. Yeah. Um, and when I went in, I mean, absolutely stunning. I almost started crying the moment I walked in, just how powerful it is and also encountering such a famous, iconic building um, and also the Hunchback of Notre Dame from Disney was one of my absolute oh my God, So I also had this like kind of emotional reaction to that. But I was also, I felt slightly kind of disappointed by how it, quote unquote touristy it was um, and how many people there were because I really wanted to absorb it. And people were just like taking all these selfies and walking around and not necessarily interacting with the history. Yeah. And it just felt weird to me, like kind of, I, I, it's hard to describe, but then I went um, across the street to um, St. Severin Church, which is this beautiful, I think it's a 12th century church and it's famous for one of its main columns being a twisted column and the way that the arches all like weave into this column and, and spin. Um, and it was completely empty and dark, even yeah. though it was built around the same time. And, no, I agree. Okay. And we have gotten lost in our conversation, yeah. but we are going to play our our clip as we segue into laughing at or laughing with the Middle Ages. Serving flagons of mead. Now, her costume was obviously Germanic, but in 1487, the Bavarian purity laws, or Reinheitsgebot, severely limited the availability of mead. At best, they would have had some sort of spiced wine. You're nitpicking. Oh, 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 really? Well, here's another nit for you. The flagons would not have been made of polypropylene. Renaissance fairs aren't about historical accuracy. They're about taking chubby girls who work at Kinko's and lacing them up in corsets so tight their bosom jumps out and says, howdy. <laughs> Bosoms would not have said howdy in the 15th century. If anything, they would have said bizarre. I don't care what the bosoms say, Sheldon. I just want to be part of the conversation. Hi, guys. It's like you've been to the Renaissance fair, I'm hoping. <laughs> Renaissance fair, more of a medieval slash age of enlightenment slash any excuse to wear a codpiece fair. So that was a clip from the television series Big Bang Theory for if any of you were listening and thinking those voices sound very familiar, can't place it. Um, So Big Bang Theory, hometown Pasadena, California. (laughs) 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 Whenever, Whenever I introduce myself to people, and, you know, they go, where are you from? That's a question. I'll go, have you seen the Big Bang Theory? Oh, that's, that's a smart way of doing it. Yeah, because people don't really know about the Rose Parade. Um, nice. But they work at Caltech, which I currently live a 15-minute walk from. So Cool. Um, but that aside, we want to kind of break apart what – so Sheldon is the one that is the very kind of straight, very literal person yeah. and talking about how inaccurate, how anachronistic the Renaissance fair was. was. And, he's, and, and for like, to improve, like enhance the comedic effect, he's wearing a nun costume. And given that right. he's tall and lanky, that makes it funnier as well. Right. So we were brought to attention to this clip through an article by Louise Dossin that talks about um, comedy in the Middle Ages uh, and she just talks briefly about this scene and also the way that the characters are, are dressed. So since this is an audio format, um, Sheldon is dressed as a monk with a cowl and a giant wooden cross across his chest. And then 
um, Leonard, who is his closest friend, confidant, is dressed as a knight. He has faux chain mail. And then we have Raj, who's dressed as a, what looks like a squire and definitely looks a bit more Renaissance rather than... Yeah, I agree. Um, medieval, with a big plume in his hat. So that's quite um, interesting. And then the last character, Howard, is dressed as a court jester, and that's what the hat was talking about, and the bright colors and the bells on the sides of the hat. But we want to return... So each character, in a, in a nutshell, is dressed sort of like their personality, one could argue. Yeah. Um, so Howard is like the funny one that's kind of making the slightly... Uh, Inappropriate Insensitive jokes about uh, women. We have Raj, who's quite quiet and just off to the side. We have Leonard, who becomes kind of a, the defender of the anachronism. Yeah. We don't have it in this clip, but he tells Sheldon to, like, calm down. It's not that big of a deal. So he's, like, the knight for anachronism. Yeah. And then we have Sheldon, the, like, quote-unquote dry, austere yeah. figure in the monk's yeah. outfit. And I think also this kind of clip emphasizes one of the difficulties as viewers that we have with, like, comedy or representations of the middle ages and the medieval in certain ways um and like why we laugh at a medieval setting scene rather than why we don't and a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're laughing at our own ignorance because a lot of the time we don't really know we imagine that it's set in the middle ages but it's actually not right and there's a great quote by um Terry Jones, who is part of Monty Python, which we will get into Monty Python and the Holy Grail as our kind of case example for what we're talking about. But so Terry Jones becomes an amateur slash professional medievalist throughout his life and writes a lot of, of books about Chaucer. But he says um, in this article that he wrote, the medieval world wasn't a time of stagnation or ignorance a lot of what we assume to be medieval ignorance is in fact our own ignorance about the medieval world. So exactly that, like what we're laughing yeah. at, we don't necessarily know yeah. what it is we're laughing at. And that's quite compelling, especially for yeah. our conversation today. Yeah. Which is why we chose this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and we want to make a quick clarification before we delve in a bit further uh, the difference between medieval studies and medievalism, because we will be talking about those words interchangeably, not interchangeably, but frequently. So medievalism, if you can kind of tell by the ism <laughs> at the end, <laughs> is the study of responses to the Middle Ages at all periods since the sense of the medieval began to develop. So medievalism is usually distinguished from its long-established parent medieval studies which involves study of the actual middle ages the periods literatures languages history architecture wars religion and people so the primary sources that we then take medievalism from um, case examples would be a knight's tale princess bride game of thrones as medievalism yeah so context for us as we move forward so we toe the line between both we look at yeah. medievalism and what it takes from medieval studies and in a way this is exactly the structure that we had in our course so we would go back to the sources and then look at the ways in which it was transformed in the present or in you know more modern times and we kind of saw that progression through our class exactly and one could argue, as we said in our very first introductory episode, that we are still kind of in the Middle Ages. Yeah. And part of this ignorance that we should kind of talk about that links us to last week was they keep talking about the Renaissance Fair being in the 15th century. So this means the 1400s. Yeah. And Sheldon, of course, is like, well, this is all over the place. This is Enlightenment. This is Renaissance. This is medieval. So this is like 500, 600 years. Yeah. But last week, if you recall, we were talking about the Black Plague, which was in the 1450s, which is the 15th century. Yeah. Um, the Renaissance did, in fact, start in Italy in the 15th century. 
Um, sometimes historians argue that it's in response to the, the Black Death, but it is quite curious, this idea of the medieval that we have, where, at least for me, growing up and thinking about, when I think about the Black Death, the Black Plague, I think exclusively that it's a medieval phenomena. That it yeah, was I agree. In the quote-unquote Dark Ages. It's negative, all of that. But at the same time, if the Renaissance is starting and it's this good kind of rebirth, beautiful, artistic time, there's a split almost between good and evil, between light and dark occurring. Yeah, for sure. And also I feel like in the way that it's taught very frequently kind of shows the Middle Ages as a period of stagnation, of no progress. Of, I mean, sorry, I know progress is not a word that we should really use with history, but like with no scientific um, improvements or inventions and like this period where nothing actually came to be and nothing new happened. And when actually in reality, that's, that's not really the case. And if we just look at the dates of um, beginning of the Renaissance and certain movements that started happening in Italy and, and when they were transferred to France, mm-hmm. like that linear timeline doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Time isn't separated into these really neat little boxes. It's very messy. Things overlap. Yeah. And it can get very overwhelming. Like I do not, yeah. We're not saying that, Oh, well, this is a simple, you know, crossover. It's, it's very messy, um, which is exciting, I think. Yeah. And yeah. So as we delve in more into our idea of laughing at this, I want to kind of set us up a little bit on what you were just saying. Hello. And this is kind of continuing the conversation about the medieval as being destructive or as yeah. being non quote unquote progressive. Yeah. So we're going to return to good old Umberto Eco. And this is from his book, Faith and Fakes, which we discussed in the very, very first introductory episode that we had. And he is discussing how we are still living in the Middle Ages. This is the name of the chapter that he discusses this. He's talking about how college campuses in America, so this is primarily Ivy League or like University of Chicago, are kind of these neo-medieval monasteries and the way that they're set up and these places of worship, but of knowledge or academia and how we record history and everything. And then he goes back to the way that the Middle Ages were produced and how that production relates to what we call the Renaissance. Um, And he says that the Middle Ages didn't necessarily carry out a systematic preservation or form of recording history. Uh, He says, rather, it performed a heedless destruction and a disordered preservation. It lost essential manuscripts and saved others that were quite negligible. It scratched away marvelous poems to write riddles or prayers in their place. It falsified sacred texts, uh, interpolating other passages, and in doing so, wrote its own books, quote-unquote. The Middle Ages preserved in its way the heritage of the past, but not through hibernation, rather through a constant retranslation and reuse. It was an immense work of bricolage, balanced among nostalgia, hope, and despair. So what's really interesting is if you guys, you might know of Umberto Eco through um, the film and book, uh, The Name of the Rose. And just hearing this again, it reminds me of, you know, the kind of portrayal of um, The Name of the Rose and how the monks were represented and the idea of studying and, you know, the idea that there is no critical thinking that takes place in in most of um, the great academics of the time. but again, that's not really, this may have been true for certain fields, but it's not true in all respects and in all, um, by all means, is not the definition of the Middle Ages in a way. Right. And uh, The Name of the Rose, uh, which features good old Sean Connery <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and a very, very young Christian Slater, um, is a really, really interesting and compelling example to think about this because it has that kind of austere uh, format to it and spoiler alert but the ending is all about trying one of the oldest monks trying to repress a 
Greek text. I believe it's by Plato. Aristotle. Aristotle is, Aristotle is the text on laughter, which actually has never been found. So th- that wasn't right. a, it's, you know, taking a piece of history and putting it in an anachronistic way. Right. Um, but exactly, this monk wants to repress this text and he does it through murder. But because he thinks that laughter doesn't have a place in the monastery, that laughter is a corruption, that laughter is something that is unsacred or unholy. And there is like an irony to that because at least today when we look at the the medieval, so much of it is directly related to comedy, to laughing at and or with the medieval Middle Ages. And so, so yeah. I think one thing that we should mention as well is the ideas of laughing at and laughing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously we've talked about it very briefly, but in a way it kind of relates to the way laughing at something kind of doesn't press, like takes away the idea that you're thinking about it with the culture in mind or with the period in mind. Whereas if you're laughing with, you're laughing with the knowledge of what the culture was like and so in a way you're more it's like an inside joke in certain ways very very simplistically put and in a way if you think about when we think of the you know medieval laughing at like the scenery in the medieval times and all that I wouldn't Mm -hmm. say it's very smart um we don't laugh at like very smart things we laugh at like Fart jokes. Yeah. People (laughs) being a bit silly or like um, very simple humor. Whereas actually in reality, it was quite witty. Yeah. um, There's a very kind of scatological sense of the medieval. For sure. And, or, or on the the flip side. Yeah. The barbaric. There's also a lot of fun poked at, you know, the very austere religious side of the medieval. Um, which I guess is quite an easy target. But then again, it's not, that is laughing at more than with. It's, I feel it's more laughing at the idea of religion rather than the medieval itself. But because the medieval is so entwined and associated with the religious that people conflate the two. Yeah. So that's why we really want to take this argument into Monty Python's the Holy Grail, because we think that it's an excellent example of both. And it's a cult classic. And even if you haven't seen the film, we feel that you have inevitably either heard of it or seen clips. Yeah, especially if you're British. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, Ella, do you recall, like, your first encounter with Monty Python and the Holy Grail? So I think Uh, my my first encounter was quite a late one it was mm-hmm. um one of our listeners I hope um Liv the my boyfriend's sister I think she must have shown me a couple of clips and it kind of stuck with me and then I watched it for the first time most of it yesterday so <laughs> um my encounter is quite new but it kind of didn't feel that new if that makes sense yeah definitely um which I guess speaks to its yeah. presence in kind of yeah. everyday culture. What about you? So I have been trying to think of kind of exactly when I encountered Monty Python. I had to, I was a preteen. I know that. Let's say I was 12. So this is after I studied the Arthurian cycle and legends in school. And I think it was directly related to the birth of YouTube. So around like 2007 Mm -hmm. and the clip of the French guard, I feel like that was something that was kind of circulating around my group of friends for some reason. (laughs) And so I I watched the movie and I remember I just didn't understand 90% of it and found it boring and really long, even though it's (laughs) only an hour and a half. And, you know, as I've, grown through time because that was quite a while over a decade ago um you know scenes come up here and there uh the black knight is perhaps the most 
famous, at yeah. least in my mind, where he's like, tis but a scratch. <laughs> and actually, interestingly, I found that that was like, if anyone's read uh, Italo Calvino's um, books, some mm-hmm. of them reminded me of like some of the absurd scene, um, settings of his plots. And, it, you know, it was very strange to see how like that kind of thing is perpetuated in, in, in our culture. That view of the Middle Ages, kind of timeless and kind of ahistorical and anachronistic. Yeah, and that's like so kind of, that's such an interesting connection because I, I haven't read any Italia uh, Cavino. But also because in researching and preparation for this podcast today, um, that scene is one of the ones that is actually kind of directly related to the Middle Ages. It's a conflation of romantic poems where knights go off into their quest and experience like great physical harm and say things like tis but a scratch or I'm fine and I continue they weren't necessarily like completely disembodied but that's like a recurring trope throughout the medieval storytelling so um the Monty Pythons the Pythoners the Pythons anyways they were (laughs) as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast like for example Terry Jones were medievalists they were actually quite aware of what yeah. they were doing and then like poking fun at that and taking that and manipulating it into their sense of comedy. Kind of, yeah, making it absurd when actually it is representative of the time. Exactly. And another fantastic example of this is the rabbit of Kerbenog. So the, the famous rabbit scene, um, <laughs> Which watching that, I so I rewatched Monty Python last night and significantly enjoyed it and laughed much heartier than uh, preteen self. Um, so that scene, you know, it seems so absurd that they're like terrified of this rabbit that is just destroying them, <laughs> like a bunicula, but on steroids. But uh, so that scene is actually taken from medieval texts most specifically from statues and illustrations around Notre Dame in Paris. Oh, where, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm, so there are scenes of this, uh, or depictions of this, the sin of cowardice, and there are knights running from rabbits. So something that is seemingly harmless, uh, causing cowardice. So yeah. again, they're taking, and this is also shown in marginalia throughout medieval manuscripts. So yeah. those little side doodles that uh, we all kind of associate with the medieval, I would think. They're really trending on Twitter um, and memes. Like, they're Yeah, they're around, the thing right now. Which I'm all for. Give, <laughs> give them to me. Give me more. But, yeah, so that scene, which, again, just seems but bonkers. Like, what, like what drug were they on to think of this? One main thing. It's actually very cleverly and intuitively linked to something that is medieval. It's true. And, I mean, the medieval has some fucking wild marginalia and themes. Uh, Lots of snails, knights fighting snails, people being swallowed by random fish, knives going into heads, but the person seems fine. Like, that's a whole other thing of why... Uh, and they're not always sure. But this is a great example of laughing with the Middle Ages. Yeah. And then there's another scene which I thought was like quite, it was kind of, it was funny, but then also it was a bit like laughing at rather than with. Do you remember the scene where they're in front of the French castle mm-hmm. and there's a Trojan horse? <laughs> the Trojan rabbit, yeah. yeah and they forget. <laughs> They forget to get inside it, <laughs> which oh. felt more like laughing at than laughing with. Yeah, that's kind of laughing at the ignorance, I guess. Yeah. Um, and there's also the continuing theme, I guess, of like the stupidity where Arthur can't count. And mm-hmm. so this is back in the Rabbit of Kerbanog scene because it's just such a rich medieval scene where he's getting ready to throw the holy hand grenade of Antioch, which actually looks 
very eerily like the sovereign's orb of the United Kingdom. Like they look the same. So that's like a satire political joke. But when he's getting ready to throw it after he pulls the, the pin out, he goes one, two, five. And one of the other knights has to correct him because he just can't count or do math at all throughout the entire movie. Oh, I feel um, that. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, maths are not my my strong suit. But just very, very funny. And then there are other scenes that are both laughing at and laughing with. So I'm also thinking of the scene, the witch scene. Yeah, yeah. So there were witches in the Middle Ages, but not the way that we necessarily think think of them. Yeah. Actually a very, that's a much more modern idea. I mean, witch hunts with like, uh, from, I believe it's James the first or James the fourth in Scotland. And he wrote the demonology in the early uh, 17th century. And that Mm -hmm. was like when the witch trials occurred. Right. And that's also like contemporary to the Salem witch trials. So that's separated by a couple hundred years. Um, But but it's interesting. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just gonna say that scene. It's quite early on just floored me. I was laughing so hard. Uh, maybe no one else thinks it is funny as I am, but when they're talking about why would a witch float? Oh, it's because she's made of wood and there's the one, <laughs> the, uh, the judge, the executioner, priest, whatnot. He goes, well, why would, like, how can we tell if she's made of wood? And what, <laughs> one of the audience members goes, we make a, you make a bridge from her and <laughs> I don't know I can't deliver it in a way that's funny but that just slayed me I laughed like that's just because it's logical like if something's made of wood how do you test it made of wood? well you make something out of it you know but um that made me laugh and then that leads into the the notion of ducking so Arthur comes and says like oh it's like a duck that floats but uh, which again that's a modern association witches in the middle ages are oftentimes um, people who deal with like herbs and everything like medicine makers or I learned this from listening to uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer the podcast where they're talking about it uh the the iconography of witches is actually from alewives in the middle ages and so they, as their name says, were w- women who made and sold beer. And they wore the giant pointed hats to be discernible from people, you know, as right. a symbol. Right. But they became very wealthy and had a lot of power because they were in charge of alcohol. So politicians then demonized them and said that they were bad and that's why witches now look the way that they look when we think of them but it's so interesting right because like everything that's that seems like super surreal and just crazy and like out of anything that we could possibly imagine we ascribe to the mid the middle ages when actually in reality most of it didn't really happen then but it kind of is brought back to that yeah and it kind of occurred throughout history but if something is either undescribable or something that is non-desirable it is pushed back to the medieval as again that erroneously considered time of just chaos and darkness yeah and so so I think as well like one thing we'd like to mention is um, obviously like you know, there is this term called medieval films. And mm-hmm. like, obviously that is super anachronistic because the, the, the technology wasn't there at the time. But like that idea, which is in itself, like not place in time, allows for other anachronistic portrayals of things. And that is also why we love to watch medieval films most of the time, because there's relatable but not relatable and the things that aren't relatable actually often aren't aren't ascribed to that period mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um yeah i mean a great example kind of of that or a twist of that is a knight's tale with heath ledger 
where it does this kind of, I just always think of like Baz Luhrmann and Moulin Rouge, where it takes contemporary songs or pop culture songs and puts it in the film. So obviously an audience at a jousting fest chanting, we will rock you by Queen, <laughs> you know, and like stomping on the, oh <laughs> the stage. Like, they might've had chants. I don't know. I don't know much don't about know jousting, but not, you know, Queen. Um, something that I found really interesting regarding the research on this was so in Monty Python they originally had a deal with the Scottish uh, historic like national trust to film in certain castles right um, and then two weeks before primary filming was going to commence the Scottish national trust pulled out because mm-hmm. they thought that the troop was going to cause damage not only physically to the buildings but also historic damage which I find very, very interesting. Yeah, for sure. It's quite like, it's the idea that there's a certain type of history that can be known by the masses and like anything that, the idea that if you laugh at something, you're actually denigrating the content. Right, and that the perhaps it was like the association potentially that these castles would then have to, you know, this comedy film. But then again, as we've said, they were very in tune and aware and Dune castle, which is the primary castle with the external facade. And so like the French man looking down is arguably one of the most well-preserved castles in Scotland. Um, and they were able to film there because it was privately owned. Right. And, um, it's just, it's quite compelling because, you know, you think somewhere maybe like Edinburgh Castle mm-hmm. and thinking that that is super medieval. But it's actually been added on to throughout the centuries and it's still kind of going through that and is arguably actually less historically accurate, adequate for those purposes yeah. than somewhere like Dune or the castle at the end is called, I, I love its name, Stalker Castle the one that's in the middle of the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was also privately owned. So that's why they were able to film there. So I just find that, yeah, that like damage to history. What does that mean? I mean, I understand what it means, but like, what does it actually mean? Yeah. And it's, you know, I kind of think as well, like that kind of shows the power of, of comedy because it, it scares people to think that you could use it use history and add a comedic twist to it and that could somehow change the way that you perceive a period of time when obviously it's a sketch so how accurate can it be yeah and it's that just makes me think of contemporary parody satire and comedy so for example saturday night live in america and the comedy around politics that's going on and how that actually has significant political uh, and social sway. But I feel that something like a Monty Python of being filmed at these castles is a very different type of influence of history and comedy. Agreed. Um, and yeah, like how does comedy perpetuate and continue to live and thrive throughout time um which i mean it's hard to know it's hard to say anything <laughs> <laughs> um so these were some of the things that you know we've been thinking about um but obviously these are like a modern interpretation of um this is more of a medievalist um interpretation of um a medieval setting and you know kind of a story but if you think about adaptations of medieval Mm -hmm. comedic texts such as I know I keep going on about it but it's one of the few things I know about um the Decameron Mm -hmm. um which is considered often portrayed and represented because of like it's you know very vulgar humor when in reality, 
the language itself is very, very, very fine and very witty and very smart. And um, there was a criticism that was made of Pasolini's um, adaptation of the Decameron. Mm -hmm. um, so he used Neapolitan dialect instead of the Tuscan dialect, which was the one that um, the, the um, Boccaccio used. And one of the criticisms was that actually like, his, because obviously the film format meant, meant that he had to, the kind of visual took over and the linguistic was kind of secondary. And that that mm. took away from the finesse of the language and like only showed a certain one aspect or one side of um, Boccaccio's text and story. Mm -hmm. And so within that, it's interesting because as well, like, the idea of how accurate, how close to the text, how close to the history you are, gives a certain vision of um, the Middle Ages or the medieval text and kind of it reinforces one perspective rather than another. And I guess this is what we're trying to show you guys and giving you a couple of examples to think with of what like comedy can do and what it should do and what it means for the text or what it means for the scenery or what it means for the, the period um so yeah yeah and i guess just like a final thought in relation to that for us is thinking about why for example the medieval is almost primarily films that are comedies like why do why is comedy the filter through which we return to the medieval, whereas something um, not much later, let's go with the modern times of, or the modern era of, you know, uh, Henry VIII, so late 16th century and Queen Elizabeth, those are associated with dramas and historic films, period pieces and costumes. And those can be quite dry and quite long yeah. Also very people, but we don't necessarily see that with the medieval. And I guess just kind of reflecting on why that is. And we are hoping that this kind of comedy conversation touches upon that. And we don't necessarily know the answers. No, we don't. <laughs> but it is just something worth thinking, thinking about. Yeah. And yeah, how we interact with the medieval in our everyday lives. That's it for now. But if you want to listen to other episodes and if you've missed them, please follow us on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcast, on Spotify or on Podbean. Yes. And if you follow us on any of those platforms, please give us a thumbs up, a heart or a positive review. And if you have any qualms or questions, you can send us a good old fashioned email at modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media. We have a public Facebook page under the podcast name. We have an Instagram where we have really fun stories. You can find us uh, there at podcast.modern.medieval. And finally, you can find us on Twitter where we have current updates about what's going on in the podcast. So until next time, do 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 do.